Would you turn please to the book of Acts, chapter 16. The book of Acts and chapter 16. We're going to begin at verse 22. Public opinion has turned against the gospel preachers uh, because of some false accusations made against them. And in verse 22 of Acts 16, we read that the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, that is, they whipped them at the back, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison awaking out of his sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. Now that is, in the morning, he would have been executed by his superiors, for losing his prisoners, which he assumed had happened, and so he was going to escape that shame by committing suicide. But notice verse 28, Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now please notice their answer because... In this answer, salvation is made crystal clear. He asks, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. Every chapter in the Bible is important. But every now and then you come across a chapter that is of monumental importance. And that is this chapter. We have a Bible in the English language. We know the gospel and are able to preach it tonight because of the events that took place in this chapter. These two preachers, Paul and Silas, instead of turning eastward and heading toward the Balkans and into the Russia's, Russian area and then further on into China and to Japan, they turned westward and they headed toward Europe and they had gospel meetings at a river called the Cranides outside of Philippi and they had a gospel meeting inside the city of Philippi and the gospel spread through Europe and made its way leaping the Atlantic coming to these shores, to Canada, to the United States, to South America, spread throughout the nation in English, the gospel of Christ, as God saw fit to have it move westward at this point. Now, this question, I think, is a question that marks and displays the deep anxiety in the heart of this man. And I think you'll notice that in a few minutes when he asks, what must I do to be saved? This is not a clinical discussion. He is not casually inquiring about the issue of salvation that they are preaching. You cannot help but notice when he calls for a light and he springs in and he's trembling and he falls down and then he gets back up and he takes the two preachers out into the main room and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? That his question is a question of deep anxiety. His question reveals a universal need. 
Every one of us needs to be saved. If you are going to be in heaven, you need to be saved. There must be a moment in your life when you trust Christ as your savior and he saves you. You will notice the verse to my left and your right. This is why he came into the world. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come to start a new religion. He didn't come so the churches would be built. He didn't come to show you how to live or how to die. He came to save sinners. And God has made that crystal clear. He has shown us that. He has said it in his word. The apostles preached, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It was so important and so impossible for you to save yourself that God was willing to give his son so that salvation could be possible. There's a man in our Bible that perhaps whose name you'll recognize. His name was Jacob. Jacob had lost one son that he loved very much. Another son had been taken prisoner. And a third son was, was in danger. We'll leave it at that. He was in danger. So three from 12 leaves nine. And in fact, the one son that was in danger was right before him. So two sons were missing. When he thought that it might be possible that he would lose Benjamin, he was unwilling to let him go. He didn't want to lose that one son, even though he had nine others, ten others. Didn't matter to him. It was his son, and he didn't want to lose him. God had one son, just one. One son. And he gave that one son to make salvation possible for you. I don't want to embarrass anybody that is here, but the longer that you have children, the more you love them. If you're a parent, you understand that. You love that child when it was born, when he was born, when she was born, and you looked into the eyes of that baby. You loved that child. Nobody had to teach you how to love that child. But as you move through life together and experience things together, the bond between you and your girl, the bond between you and your boy deepens and it's strengthened. So please tell me what kind of bond existed between God and his son who together for eternity had enjoyed that father-son relationship. What was it like then for God to sacrifice his son so that you could be saved? His question reveals a common misconception because he asks, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Now all over the world tonight, and all throughout history, people have been trying to do various things to get salvation, to reach heaven, to reach paradise, to reach peace. Protestants do the best they can. Catholics do what the church says. Buddhists have the four noble truths and the eightfold paths. Muslims have the five pillars of Islam and the five duties that they must fulfill. Hindus have thousands of rules and more than 330 million gods. And all throughout history and all throughout the world tonight, there are sincere people trying to do something in order to get to heaven. And this man says, what do I have to do? His question reveals a desperate urgency. He was sleeping. He'd, he'd done his job for the day. 
They brought the preachers to the door of the prison. He had taken them. He had made sure, checked their, their stocks and bonds, wrists and ankles, nice and tight. Nobody's going to escape from his prison. So he goes out and he leans back in his chair, puts his feet up on his desk, and he's asleep. But not, not now. Not after this earthquake hits. Now he is completely awake. The lack of interest that he was displaying before was all gone. It had evaporated. This is what happens when a person begins to listen to God. This is what happens when a person begins to listen to God and begins to think about eternity. And all of a sudden, other things that seem so important, they fade. I've seen people in a meeting who were spiritually asleep. Their eyes were open, but they were spiritually asleep. They had turned off the ignition in their mind, and they really weren't listening to what God had to say. And then some truth from God's word gets through the darkness, gets into their heart, and they begin to think about God and about eternity and about their sins and what will happen when they meet God and where they will be when they die. And it's like watching a person wake up as they suddenly become aware of eternal things. 400 years ago, there's a man who called it the inundation of the eternal. The inundation, like, like being swamped with waves. The inundation of the eternal, where suddenly eternal truths go washing over a person's mind and conscience. And she wakes up. He wakes up. And like this man, he realizes the most important thing in my life is to be saved. And so now he's fully aware. He had come within an inch of dying in his sins. And he seemed to know how awful that was by the use of his word saved. And he says to them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? You aware of how serious this is? Do you understand there's not another thing in your life that can match in importance the issue of whether you are saved or not? And when you read the verbs that are used here, you can see that he was visibly anxious, calling for a light. He sprang in. He's trembling. He falls down. Then he gets up and he brings them out into the other room. It's a man who is shaking to think of how close he came, how near he was to eternity. I was thinking the other night as my brother Dave was telling us about the number of suicides that employ the bridges here and between New York and New Jersey. Because there was a bridge out west that is famous for that, the Golden Gate Bridge. A number of people have jumped from it to end their life. Most are successful, if that's the term to use. Some survive. I read the words of a man who did survive. He was damaged greatly. He was injured greatly. But you don't always get to hear, of course, what's in a person's mind just before he dies, do you? Except he didn't die. So now we know. Because he said when he stepped to the edge and he was holding on to the bridge and then he just let go. He said the first thought came into his mind was this. I have just committed the biggest mistake in my life. Got that? I have just committed the biggest mistake in my life. And we only know that because he survived. What, what big mistake does a human being make? If you die without Christ, if you die not saved, then you die lost. And if you die lost, you will never be saved. There's not, not another issue in your life that stretches on beyond the grave. Nothing will affect you when you die except this whether a person has been saved or not. So please, listen to this answer 
of profound simplicity. He says, what must I do to be saved? They say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that when it comes to salvation, there are four, basically, four wrong notions that people have. And I would like to just point out to you from the Bible why they are wrong using this wonderful answer from the apostles. Error number one is people think that salvation can be earned. Error number two is people think salvation is only for a select few. Error number three is people think that, well, you maybe say you're saved, but you really can't be sure of it, not in this life. Error number four is people think, well, you can be saved, but it's not going to last because you could lose it and have to go through the whole thing all over again. Now, it's going to be very easy to remember this. Even with my poor memory, I can remember this. Salvation, first of all, salvation is free. Number two, salvation is for all. Number three, salvation is for you. And number four, salvation is forever. Just take those four thoughts with you from my part of the meeting before Mr. Zudema speaks to you. That salvation is free. People think, think you can earn it, work for it, deserve it somehow. Salvation is free. Some people think salvation is just for a select few. Salvation is not only free, it is for all. Other people say, well, okay, uh, salvation perhaps you can say you're saved, but you really can't know for sure. Salvation is for you personally, and salvation is forever. Salvation's free. Salvation's free to you. But salvation cost God everything he had. It cost Christ everything he had. There are times in the parables of the Lord Jesus where he slipped in some marvelous statements about himself that the disciples and the audience hearing could hardly have grasped, and we wouldn't have understood until he went to Calvary. So on one occasion, he told about a man who was looking for pearls. And when he found one pearl of great price, this is how the Lord Jesus described it, that the man went and sold all that he had, all that he had to buy that pearl. And I doubt that any of the disciples understood that those words sold all that he had was a description of what was going to happen at Calvary. That the Lord Jesus was going to give everything he had to buy salvation for you. And now God is offering salvation to you free of charge. Because Christ paid for it all at Calvary. The reason it is a gift is because somebody else paid for it. Just as you receive a gift on your birthday, just as you receive a gift perhaps at Christmas time, salvation, the greatest gift of all, is being offered to you freely because somebody else paid for it. He paid for it in drops of precious blood. And it is an insult to God when I imagine that I can do something or say something or pay something or endure something or sacrifice something that will therefore buy salvation when it cost God everything he had and cost Christ his life. That's why it's a gift. That's why it's free. Used to be one of the best secrets of New York City. Staten Island Ferry. There was a time when you paid 25 cents to get on the Staten Island Ferry and ride over to Staten Island. And there were times when if you stayed on the ferry, the man coming around said, don't worry about it, and didn't even charge you the 25 cents back. But even at 50 cents, it was a steal. It was a bargain. 
So while other people were lining up in the heat on the island to try to get a nice picture of Lady Liberty, you'd be on the Staten Island Ferry going by and you would have a, just an absolutely perfect panorama to take your pictures. Then to sweeten the deal, Staten Island Ferry became free. Not even a quarter. Free. Except not all tourists know that it's free. And so there are unscrupulous people who have put on jackets and have buttons and badges that make them look like they are officials handling the ferry. And they will say to tourists who come, $20, and you can get the ferry across to Staten Island. That's all $20. Yes, you'll go right past the Statue of Liberty, and you can stay on and come right back. Round trip, $20. Well, okay, there's three of us. 60 bucks, you get the Staten Island Ferry. The case I read about, the man told the people that was $400 one way. And they paid. And the police tried to catch him. I just don't remember now whether they actually got him. But here he was, charging money for something that was free. You see, if we pushed a collection plate under your nose tonight, or told you that if you gave a little something, it would really help you get to heaven, we would be unscrupulous and dishonest because we would be charging you for something that's free. The gift of God is eternal life. So if you imagine that somehow I can, I can do something that will earn me this, that will, that will win me this, that will cause God with favor to look on me and I can be saved, please remember salvation is for free. If you think to yourself, well, that may be the case, but I'm told that there's only a select few that can be saved. And there are people who will knock on your door and hand you literature and look very smiling into your eyes and will tell you that really there's only about 144,000 people who are going to make it to heaven. But perhaps you could just find a place on earth in a paradise in a coming day. Now, if that's the case, would you please remember that salvation is for all. For all. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. But that the world through him might be saved. Got that? But that the world through him might be saved. Later in John chapter 6, in one of those absolutely sweeping statements that he made, he said this, I did not come to judge the world. I came to save the world. Got that? I came to save the world. First John tells us that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So I wouldn't want to add any level of complexity to this and tell you that you need to jump through some spiritual hoops or know something a little better or learn more about the Bible when salvation is being offered to the world. Therefore, it is being offered to you tonight. To you. To you. Why would you not take it? You see, if it weren't being offered to you, if you were sitting in the meeting tonight and you knew, well, salvation is only offered to a certain few and I'm not in that class, well, then you might get up and walk from here and say, well, it was an interesting polemic we listened to tonight, but it doesn't do me any good, but he's offering salvation to you. Why would you not take it? We have people from the UK here tonight, so I need to be careful to get my, my, my facts straight, but some time ago, as I was told there was a problem in the UK 
with um, calls being made to the emergency number that really were not an emergency. So they added something to it. This is no longer the case. But instead of just dialing, I think their numerals are 999, not 911 like us, but 999. They said to get away from people with pocket dialing and with mistakes and wrongly calling. You need to dial 55 and then 999. That's all. It just added a step. Until a teenage girl was murdered. Because that extra step cost her her life. They added just one little thing to something that otherwise was very simple. There are religions all over the world that are adding just this, just this, just this, just this. Well, Christ, but you need to keep the Ten Commandments. Uh, the Lord Jesus saves, but then you need to be baptized if you're really going to be saved. Well, you need to do this. You need to pay this. You need to join this. Now, when this man asks, what must I do to be saved? Please understand that when those two men, those two evangelists give their answer, that answer sweeps the deck of everything else and everyone else and presents one person and one way of salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Are you saved? Has there been a moment in your life when you trusted Christ? Can you look somewhere in the world and say, well, no, that's where it was, that house, that field, that meeting, that tent, that hall, that building. Do you have a moment in your life, a place in this world where you turn from your sins and you personally trusted Christ? Because if you think, well, nobody can really be sure about it. This isn't the kind of thing you can be absolutely certain about. Please allow me to tell you that salvation is for whosoever. That takes you in. Salvation is for you. Christ's love for you led him to die on the cross. The shedding of his blood was so that you could be washed from your sins. The sacrifice of his life was so that you could have eternal life. He bore the judgment of God against sin so that you would not have to bear that judgment in eternity in the lake of fire. And that is why salvation is through the Lord Jesus, because it wasn't the Holy Spirit who became a man and died on the cross. It wasn't God the Father who became a man and died on the cross. It was the Lord Jesus. And the reason that he became a man and not a woman is because it was a man who did all the damage. It was a man who brought sin into the world. And therefore, God decided it would be a man who would remove sin from sinners who trust him. And so he came to save sinners. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came so that you could have eternal life. He came to give his life a ransom for many. And if you trust him tonight, you'll have a salvation that's forever. Because the Lord Jesus said, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. If you would like it a little stronger, he says in John chapter 10, shall never perish shall never perish. So I was saved as a boy in 1966. At that point, that promise became true for me. I will never perish. 
So that holds till now, half a century later. I'm going to be long gone another half a century from now, but it's still going to be true. Shall never perish. Let your mind pierce the curtain of eternity and go on out as far as your thinking can carry you. The Lord Jesus says the person to whom he gives everlasting life shall never perish. That is exactly what Mr. Zudeman meant last night when he told us about this book and about the promises of God. That other things will end. Not this. Not God's promise. I don't know what they did in North Jersey, but I'll tell you what they did in Philadelphia. When I was a boy in school, there were two drills that you had to go through. One was a fire drill where we all dutifully marched out of the school and knew where to line up in the yard. That was in case there was a fire in the school. And then there was a civil defense drill. And when the bell rang for that, and it might be possible that a a nuclear bomb could be dropped on our school, we all took refuge under our desks. (laughs) So that between us and that bomb, there would be a quarter inch of plywood, just in case Russia really hit the bomb right on the Andrew Jackson school where I was. Or on South Philadelphia High School where I was. Elementary children, you see, could get under their desk and be safe. No. No, not safe. If you trust the Lord Jesus Christ tonight, you will be safe forever. Because that's what it means to be saved. You will be safe Forever, you will be safe from the judgment against your sins. You will be safe from hell. You will be safe from the great white throne day of judgment. You will be safe from the lake of fire and you will be safe forever. So if in your mind is the question, I wish I were saved. I don't know how to be saved. What must I do to be saved? The Bible's answer, crystal clear language. So simple that a child here could take it in. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I'd like to thank everyone for coming out tonight to the tent meeting. I really appreciate everybody who's made the point to come out tonight. I'd also like to read in the book of Acts uh, just a few chapters before um, that we were just hearing about. uh, Acts 13. I'd like to read a few verses here in Acts chapter 13. Acts 13, well, we'll start reading at verse 28. Acts 13 and verse This is what the author has said. Um, Luke, Luke, the same man who wrote the gospel, he writes down something, he records the words here uh, and the Acts uh, in this book. He writes this, Acts 13 and 28, it says, And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree And they laid him in a sepulcher. They laid him in a tomb. Now verse 30 says, But God raised him from the dead, and he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, 
who are his witnesses, who are his witnesses unto the people. We'll just read verse 28 one more time. And though they found no cause of death in him. I like to put a title on my message tonight. I would just like to refer to my message in this, this way. A cause or without a cause? It's just my message tonight. A cause or without a cause? If you're a parent tonight or uh, if you were a child, pretty much applies to anyone in this tent. Uh, you can remember the, how, how angry it made you growing up as a child uh, when you ask your parents as to a reason. I remember sometimes we had to go to bed at 8 o'clock. You can imagine a night like tonight. That would be right now. Kids were outside. You could hear everyone else playing. And we would say, why? Well, it's light out. It looks the same as it did at four. Why? And, you, and I could tell my dad would say, because. And if you tested his tone of voice just right, you knew whether to ask a second time. But why? You know, we lived on Colonial Road down there in Menlo Park. I remember my mom, because she shopped at garage sales, bought me a girl's bicycle. Ride it. And I said, why? And she said, because. And you would, once again, you would test her voice just a little bit. Why? You said, all the kids are going to know on Colonial Road. It's obvious. The look of the way the bar goes and the color. She would say, because. And if you really pressed your parents, if you asked a third time sometimes, why? It's almost unanimous here. I don't think parents have changed since I was a kid, 20 years. You know what they would say? Because I said so. Because I said so. And that was it. It was just, it was over with. Just, just that, that simple answer. Because I said so. And you took it. You took the bike. You rode it. You went to bed at eight. And it agonized you. And you'd say, why? And you'd say, just because they said so. That was it. And in our lives, sometimes, you, you wonder, as you, as an adult, you want to have answers. I, and, and sometimes it's just the simplest questions. You said, I should have asked that at this point in my life. I should have asked that. Uh, sometimes as you're, uh, as you're going by, we, we, we were on the Hudson River the other day, and, and, and you'd say, you look at the, the rise and fall of the water, and it's six feet. You can measure it from, from where the highway is. You can see the marker six feet and different sometimes in the water. And I remember someone saying to me, why does that happen? And I thought, here I am. I'm going to be the scientist above all scientists. I said, the moon. And as you said it, they almost looked at you like, yeah, right. It's so far away. How could that be the cause of that? So far away. I was driving around with another little kid the other day, uh, my friend up in uh, Connecticut, and my Jeep, we took the roof off, and uh, we were driving down the road, and, and he's only maybe seven or eight, so I know he's young, because he refers to me as Mr. Zudema. And he says, Mr. Zudema, he goes, why is the sky blue? And, you know, you're thinking, if I can't answer the simple ones, how am I going to answer the hard ones? I had to look it up. Uh, apparently, it, it absorbs all the other colors, except for the blue color. But just simple reasons in life. And you say, you say, you say, you want to know the cause of something. You want to know the cause. You could say, if you could understand the cause of something, it lends so much meaning to it, so much validity. If you could just know the cause, it's, it's the famous uh, uh, theory or it's the famous statement of, of one of the greatest scientists of all time, Isaac Newton, a believer in Jesus Christ nonetheless, and considered to be the greatest scientist of all time. He, he developed that saying that we all know, the third law, that for every action, there's an opposite an equal reaction when you see something take place you have to say why because there's a cause 
There's a cause for it. And we do that in life. And, and, and sometimes we have the answers and sometimes we don't. Sometimes the answers are so far away, you'd say no one would ever believe me. And tonight we've already heard, your soul could be in heaven. Why? Because Christ, you say he's so far away, he couldn't have come any closer. He came right to where we were. He came right to this place and he died on a cross for you. Take it or leave it. And, and our verse here, it says, though they found no cause of death in him. Sometimes I think of things that are just still argued about, but simple. People are always asking me when they find out you're a believer. They said, what's the cause of this world? That's the first thing. You get at a job and, and you say, people, you say, I, I, if it comes up, you say, I'm actually a Christian. The first thing they want to hit you with, what's the cause of this world? You know, whether you believe it or not doesn't change the fact that God is the cause of this world. Whether you believe it or not, it doesn't change it. In fact, the Bible says without Jesus Christ, nothing was made that is made. Nothing. And I, I don't want to sound crass, but whether you believe it or not doesn't change it. It's still true. When we look at just the simple causes of, of everything, sometimes when I think of evil, and you'd say, what is the cause of evil? And if you were like me as a, as a kid or, or, or growing, you know, even as a young, a, a young person, evil was always outside your window, right? Especially if you watch something on television that night, like Unsolved Mysteries. Evil was just outside. It was always your window, not your parents' window. Evil was right outside yours or was under your bed. My father always tells me about an adult that he used to know, and they has to go into that lady's house and look under her bed just to tell her there was nothing evil under her bed. It plagues us. Evil's always outside of us. Think about it when you're in a city sometimes. You say evil's down in the streets. You say evil's over there. We look on the news and we see people who are, who are, are exchanging gunfire, whether it's in our cities or whether it's across an ocean, and it's always evil is somewhere else. It's always some other place. It's always distant. It's, it's far enough away from me. And I've even heard people say, you know, you know, the reason, the reason we are the way we are is because our surroundings are evil. I said to a lady once, and she said it to me, I said, the next time you give your kid time out for being bad, he should say to you, you're coming with me. You're my surroundings. It, it, it's just to, to blame it on someone, to say someone else is the reason. And as soon as I want to blame it on someone else, I recognize this. If you took all of us from the earth, evil would leave too. It's in you and I. Sin, uh, just, just the, 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 the horrible things of this life is in you and in I. And I would say to you tonight, what you think about sin will determine what you think about the cross and what you think about just evil. What do you think about the, the, the state of your own soul, the, your own heart? That determines what a person will think about the cross because if, there's, if, if it's no sin, there's no need for a cross. No need. If we're not bad people, Calvary was in vain. But, but if, 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 if what the Bible says Sometimes it tells me, it says, if, if my hand does something, I should just get rid of it because it's not worth it to lose my eternity over a hand. And if my eyes, if they keep looking in the wrong direction, just get rid of them. It's not worth it to go down to hell because of my eyes. And if my feet are always taking me in the wrong places, get rid of them. It's not worth it to go down to a lost eternity because of my feet. But you know what? Even if I didn't have feet, arms, and eyes, I would still be a sinner. Why? Because it's not in my feet, my arms, and my eyes. It's right in here. It's right in here. You try to get rid of it. 
How has it been going? How has it been going trying to cure the soul of sin on your own? And so when I look at the cause of evil, I, I, I recognize right away that what's inside of me, it's right there. That's the cause. I, I can't blame it on environments. I, I can't blame it on, on governments. I blame it on me. I'm the problem with this world. I am. I, I say that for, foremost and sincerely as this preacher. I'm the, I'm the problem. I don't know. And, and, and knowing that, what it would mean to look at Calvary then, you say, that fact, the cause of it, the cause, it has a cause. When I look at Jesus Christ, it's only in him that I start to find things that have no cause. Everything has a cause. Everything. The reason you're here tonight, uh, the, the way you think, uh, um, what, what you think about I'm saying, what you think about the Bible, uh, what you think about the person next to you, it all has a cause. And yet I come to this man, Jesus Christ, and the Bible tells me in John 15 that he was hated without a cause. Without a cause. You couldn't find one. If you searched and searched, you say, I know people like that. I don't. I've never met a man like that. I could give you a hundred reasons to hate me and they'd all be valid. I could give you a thousand. I, I could, you wouldn't have to be around me more than a day to find some reason to dislike me. And yet not so with Christ. Hated, no cause. No cause. Not a single one from the day he was born to the day he died. If you rummaged through his life, if you traced his every step and heard his every word and saw his every action, you'd find no reason to dislike him. And yet the Bible says he was hated without a cause. And, and, and to come against that, it says this. That he loves you without a cause. Without a cause. That is remarkable. Uh, re re remarkable the fact that he could love. We sing the song. Uh, we, we were reminded, I remember years ago, by our brother Eugene, that the ladies who wrote that song, just buried up in the West Point Cemetery, and they pen those, I would almost say they're immortal words. I don't know what we're going to sing in heaven, but I would imagine that if there's a kids meeting heaven, they're going to sing it there. Jesus loves me. This I know, because the Bible tells me so. You sing through all the verses and you look for a cause as to why Jesus loved you. It's not in the song. It's not there. It's not in the song. Sometimes uh, people say to their significant other, and maybe you have, you could say, uh, the, the reason I love him, the reason I love her, it, 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 could, be, it could be something to do with her looks. You could say, no, it's, sometimes people tell me it's the way, way he laughs or the most common reason, they're living, right? The money they bring home. That's why I love them. Tell me, what happens when you stop making money? What happens when you lose your looks? What happens when you stop making them laugh? Will you lose the love? Always be wary of giving people reasons to love you because what happens when you lose the reasons? You know, I never gave God a reason to love me. I never did. He loved me without a cause. He never asked me for a cause to love me, and he never will. Never will. I, I'm not earning the love of God. I'm not deserving of it. I can't accumulate it because he loves me. And you'd say, fill in the reason. I cannot. And with all due respect, neither can you. And yet you say, that's a cheap love. No, that is the best, most valuable love the world has ever known. That God loved and God gave his son. And you'd say, what's the cause? It's not in me. 
Bible tells me further in Romans 3 that we can be justified, that we could be saved. And it says here, without a cause, without a cause. It uses this term freely. Just means without a cause to say that I could have salvation tonight and I wouldn't have to achieve it. I wouldn't have had to have done something for it. And you say, Dave, what is it? We've already been hearing about believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that leads people to get saved? It's people who realize the evil that's in them. If, if you didn't have a problem, you'd never seek a doctor. And actually, the reason that most of us don't go to doctors is because we know we have problems, but we don't want to hear about them. That's the reason I don't go. I know there's things wrong. I know that, that I'm not taking care of certain parts of me, right? But if I go to that doctor, it's going to come up on a statement. It's going to be printed on a page. It's going to be clear and concise that I have a problem. And to be honest, I don't want to hear it. You say, oh, Dave, you're, you're, you're foolish. You're naive. Don't you value your life? I ask you, do you value your life? Would you bring your problem to the greatest of all physicians? Would you seek a remedy? You say, I don't have a problem. You'd be the first person I met. Bible says all have sinned. All fallen short of the glory of God. And you'd say, here, the fact that Christ, he saves. And he doesn't ask you for a reason to save. He says he just saves. And the Bible, it goes on. I could go on and tell you other things that have no cause. There's a verse in Galatians 2 and 21. And it says, if we could get to heaven because of a rule, We've heard so many of the rules that our brothers were bringing up tonight. So many of them. I'm almost thinking sometimes we, you could make them up. If I told you heaven was a, a six-foot high jump, heaven was dunking a basketball in an 11-foot hoop, we, 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 would, we would set up a court right here. We would make sure you didn't leave the end of the week before you could throw one down. Just make a law and make heaven as a result of that law. You have to knock on a hundred doors. You have to read the Bible five times. You have to give me $1,000. The Bible says if heaven was as a result of a rule, then Christ died for no cause. Did he die for no cause? Bible says there was no reason that he died if you can get to heaven by a rule. Going back to what our verse says here. Our verse says, though they found no cause of death in him, yet they desired Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, right? All that they did, those men that day, all that they did to him. And, and, and yet, every time they did something, they were just doing what the word of God said they would do. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that day that, that, that when those men, when they put him on a cross, they were just doing what the Bible said they would do when they pierced his hands and they pierced his feet. They were just doing what the Bible said they would do when they mocked him. They were just doing what the Bible said they would do. When they took his garments from him in shame and they gambled over them, they were just doing what the Bible said they would do. They were just doing what the Bible said they were going to do. The Bible tells me that God does what the Bible says he will do. If you wanted to be saved tonight, if you wanted to have your sins forgiven, I know that there is a certain degree of pride in each and every one of us from the way that we were raised to our families 
to people who have already passed before they've ever heard anything like this, and you say, there's so many things that come into a gospel meeting that I'm not aware of. But I would just ask you sincerely tonight, if you really wanted to be saved, if you wanted to know your sins forgiven and to be absolutely sure, would you not take God at what the Bible says he would do? And the Bible says that those that look unto him will be saved. He says, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. I am God. There's no one else. Would you not take God at his word? The Bible says they found no cause of death in him. Luke, who records these words that were written, he was a doctor. He was a doctor. And in, in his first chapter of his gospel, Luke chapter 1, he says this. If you were to read it in the Greek language, he says this. We did an autopsy. We did an autopsy on this man because those men said they found no cause of death in him. Is it true? Is it true? And as a doctor, he uses his own terminology. Maybe you're in the medical profession. You know what that is. He says, we're going to look into it. We're going to do this. We're going to pick everything apart and really find out if there was no cause of death in him. Why do people die? Why do people die? I've been at funerals where I could have carried the coffin with one of my arms. I buried people that I would have done anything to still have them today. And you'd say, when I was there, whether I was 9 or 19 or 29, it didn't change anything. When I looked at someone who was lifeless in a casket and you said, why are they there? I didn't have to go past the one-word answer. They were there because of sin, because the Bible tells me people die because of sin. The wages of sin is death. Every one of us here believer and unbeliever alike, when we go to die, it's because of sin. And yet the gift of God, you'd say, the reason that we go up, you'd say, the gift of God is eternal life. And when they said there, they found no cause of death in him. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't have a single sin, not a single wrong, not one misstep. Even the man on the cross next to him, he said, this man, he's done, he's done nothing out of place. He's done nothing wrong. And you add it up in your mind. You say, he never spoke an ill word. He, he never took a misstep. You say, he never had a bad motive. He, he never, no, never, no, never thought a sin, did a sin, had a sin. Why did he die? What was the cause of death? We, we, we ask ourselves, what was the cause of death? I'm looking at a tent tonight of about 81 or 82 causes of death. Because these men said they could find no cause of death in him. I know why he died. I do. I know why he died. You've been looking at it. I could quote older verses for you. Christ died for us. What about for when we were yet without strength? In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. What about the way we started the meetings? In 1 Corinthians 15 and 3, Christ died for us. Christ died for our sins. You say, is that it? Is it did, he, did he really die for my sins? For, for mine? You say, to, to take that in, that he died for my sins. That when it comes to the cause of death, there was no reason that he should save me. There was no reason that he should love me. None. A zero. In fact, it was below zero. I was only giving him reasons for dislike, and yet he loved me without a cause. And yet he saves me, never asking me for a reason. I've never deserved it. I never could earn it. 
And you'd say, could you be saved tonight? Could you have salvation, forgiveness of sins? You say, could I really know for sure? Maybe I'm addressing people tonight and you just want to say, I want a guarantee from the Bible, you know, from cover to cover. The God of heaven just holds up his word tonight. And if you ask him, why? Why? Because I said so. That's what your parents said to you and agonized you, made you so mad because I said so. It's the one thing we, we hated as children, that because I said so. And yet how sweet to think that you could be forgiven of every single one of your sins. You could know a, a home in heaven that you, you, my friend, could be saved. And you would ask me for a guarantee tonight, and I can't offer you a guarantee, but the God of heaven simply says, because I said so. From cover to cover, it's hard to open a page sometimes in this book that does not tell me of a God who longs to save sinners, who longs to save individuals. And so as the writer says, they found no cause of death in him. I'm living proof tonight. I'm, I'm proof of the cause of death. Me. And I, I'm, I'm not afraid to declare it. You could write it down. You could etch it in marble. Write it with lead. Publish it all around. It's the last thing that we would ever declare on earth had we ever taken someone else's life. And yet it's the first thing that we ever declare when we have a relationship with God, that I was the reason. My sins put him there. Christ died for me. They found no cause of death in him. Some people will leave this tent tonight and they'll realize, I don't know why he died. A lot of people will go away from this tent tonight and they will realize uh, the one fact that guarantees them of eternity and of heaven and of salvation was that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that Christ died for them. And if you're looking for a guarantee, it doesn't get any more rock solid than this, that God says, because I said so. He has said it. You can believe it. And you can be saved. What must I do to be saved? Realize what Christ did when he died for you. Took your place at Calvary. Guarantees you a home in heaven. It's hard to imagine that some people don't want us. I think that as our brother was pointing out, if relationships go closer with people as they live on together, the longer you know people who refuse Christ, it only perplexes you. It only, it only adds sorrow sometimes. Of all the joy that Christ brings to a life, there is a certain amount of sorrow to think that we're looking at individuals tonight and they know that he died. And they know that they're a sinner. And somehow you could leave tonight without salvation is beyond me. There's no reason to perish tonight. There's no reason to leave here lost. Because the man on the center tree, Jesus Christ, died for your sins. You could believe that. 